0: Good morning everyone and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leia M, recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. This year ID numbers for Friday, October 21st are the following for the 7am eastern big book study the share id 19542 that's 19542 and for the 10am eastern big book study 19543 that's 19543 this morning a vision for you presents let the miracle begin finding god in We Agnostics. We are driven into the Overeaters Anonymous program by the frustration, pain, suffering, bewilderment, and hopelessness we experienced in the bondage of compulsive overeating. In step one, we found complete despair, powerlessness. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive. Eating by ourselves. We've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our efforts, our self knowledge, our philosophies, morality, goals, or good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. In step two, we are given the solution. Our situation is not hopeless. Far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. The 12 steps don't just refer to God. They also tell us about Him. First, they let us know that He is a power and that this power is greater than ourselves. God is not an idea or an abstraction. He's a force, and he is active in our lives. And this force is more powerful than we are. Further, we are told that this power can actually do something for us, something quite big. It can restore us to sanity. In other words, right away, in the second step, we've already been told quite a lot about God. Not just that he exists, but also about how he manifests himself in our lives. As the big book says, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how are we to find this power? Chapter 4 of the big book, entitled, We Agnostics, describes, discusses, and explains the need and the search for a power greater than ourselves, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. Joining us today to bring to life Chapter 4, We Agnostics, is Janet B., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Janet is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, a beloved and loyal member of a vision for you, dedicated to helping others and to carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and always a delight to have Janet be on the line this morning. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Leah. Good
1: morning, everyone. Um So We Agnostics, my favorite chapter in the book on page 44, I just want to hopefully bring to life and talk about some of the things in this chapter that are really special to me. So if you have your books, we are starting at the beginning, page 44, where it says in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism or for us, compulsive eating. Okay, what have we learned? what do they say is important for us to have learned by this point so i kind of flip back to page 43 the very last paragraph where they sum it up and they say what they expect us to learn to have learned at this point two things one that the alcoholic or compulsive eater has no effective mental defense against the first drink first compulsive bite and two neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense, that that defense must come from a higher power. So I just wanna quickly look at these two things because they're telling us right at the beginning of We Agnostics, we have to have this foundation. Otherwise, we're building something on a faulty foundation and then ultimately the house will collapse. So one, that we have no effective mental defense against the first for us, compulsive bite. What does that mean to have no effective mental defense? And, you know, later on, if you all want, back on page 24, they explain it really well and in depth. And I'll just try and do it really quickly. No effective mental defense. So they're telling me that my defense against the first compulsive bite is a mental defense. And on page 24, they talk about it being my memory well, how can my memory be my defense? That sounds kind of weird. And the best way I can explain it is with an example out of my own life. Um, I have a horrible cat allergy. If I'm near a cat, I'm liable to, like, wheeze and sneeze and have an asthma attack, and it's really not pretty. Um, So let's say a friend of mine invites me to her house, and she has a cat, and I really want to go. Immediately, my memory will grab the data points in my brain that say, remember, you went into a pet store and you had an asthma attack. Remember, you went to Joe and Sally's house and you couldn't breathe. Remember, this time you sneezed all night long. It'll grab the data points, generate a thought to run across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. Cats will give you an asthma attack and I don't do it. I have a mental defense, so even the book talks about hot stoves. We've all burnt our hand on a hot stove, so I'm about to clean up after dinner, about to wipe down the stove, and my memory grabs a data point that say, "Up, oh, you touched a hot stove on this day and you burnt your hand. Don't do it. You touched your hand. You touched a hot stove on this day, and you know you scorched your finger." Generates a thought to run across the bridge. To my conscious mind where I make decisions to say, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn your hand. But when it came to food, part of that worked, right? I would about, I always, I can think back to college. I was binge on a certain brand of cookie. I mean, I binge on a lot, but this was my favorite. Brand of cookies came in a box of 20. I would go down to the Duane Reed, buy my box, say I'm only going to have one or two. We all know how that story ended. I would eat all 20 and often another box and more. So in my brain are all these data points of you say you're going to have just one, but you ended up eating the whole box. Last week, you said you were going to have two, but you ended up eating that box and another box. So my memory does its job, grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You're not going to be able to stop with one or two. You're going to eat the whole box and more. Except unlike with cats and hot stoves, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind is broken. And that thought can't make it across. And that, I believe, is what it means to have no mental defense. I cannot remember how awful it was how all those times before I tried but couldn't stop. Or I can't remember that I cared because sometimes it's like, the heck with it, I'll eat all 20, who cares? But the same thing, the the memory of how much I care, how much pain I was in, couldn't make it across. No mental defense. Then it tells me, okay, if that's the case, neither myself nor any other human being can provide a defense. So that means ultimately the group cannot be my higher power um, because that can't give me power. The group can give me support and love and fellowship, but not power. And it tells me my defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. So now we flip back to page 44, and in the first paragraph it tells us that if when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely. Or if when you start, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic or a compulsive eater. So they're telling me if I honestly want to, I can't quit. I'm a compulsive eater. And that's really strangely comforting to me because I remember my first six or seven years in OA, I never got more than two weeks of abstinence. And most of the time I couldn't even make it to lunch. I honestly wanted to stop, and I couldn't. So people used to say about me, oh, she really doesn't want to stop. She doesn't really have a desire. And that wasn't true. So this book is really comforting to me because they tell me that if I honestly want to stop but can't, it just means I'm a compulsive eater that's it. That's that's the definition of a compulsive eater. I suppose the definition of a cancer patient is if when you honestly want to, you have cancer cells and you can't make them stop multiplying on your own, you've got cancer. No one would expect a cancer patient to make her cell stop multiplying. And yet people expected me on my own power to stop binging. I couldn't. And they tell me, of course, desire isn't the solution the end of the paragraph, they tell me what the solution is. If that be the case, if you're a real compulsive eater, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, thank God, they're giving me a solution. I have this illness, and I need a spiritual experience. Okay, what is a spiritual experience anyway, this thing that I must have? There's a few definitions in the book, but I think the best one is on page 25 where it says the great fact is justice and nothing less like guys we should settle for nothing less we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences and here's what a spiritual experience does revolutionize our whole attitude toward life toward our fellows and toward God's universe the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty That our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. So a spiritual experience is miraculous. It's a miracle of God entering into my heart and basically taking control and rewiring it. So my selfish, self-centered priorities, always festering on resentments and fears and self-pity changes. It's revolutionized. And I get a whole new attitude toward life, gratitude, toward my fellows, a desire to be helpful, like not just doing it to save my butt, but I start caring about other people and toward God's universe. It's all changed. That's what they're telling me I need. And then, of course, the $64,000 question, how do I get it? And they say to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic. I love that because it seems they're saying, Yeah, you may feel you are, but, you know, just hang on because maybe you're really not. And it says, it may seem impossible, but it isn't so difficult. And they tell us a few things to do and not do. So bottom of page 44, they tell us we must find a spiritual basis of life. Um, I think that's really helpful because I can start developing a spiritual basis of life no matter what. There are certain things I can start doing. I can start being honest. I can start being unselfish. I could start putting the welfare of other people first. No matter what I believe or don't believe, I can start living a certain way. And they tell me, very bottom of page 44, what might not work, what generally doesn't work for people like us. And they say that's a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life. A mere code of morals might be something like, I'll try to follow the Ten Commandments. I'll try to follow the rules of my religion or a better philosophy of life, like do no evil. And they say, yeah, if that were enough, we would have recovered long ago, page 45. But it said these codes and philosophies didn't save us, right? Once I have this illness, I can't save myself. I need to be rescued. But. Thankfully, God is in the search and rescue business, so, so I'm not sunk. But they're telling us, I could wish to be a good person all I want. I didn't have the power. And page 45, it defines the problem. I love that because if I'm trying to solve a problem, I need to really know what the problem is. And they're telling me my problem isn't lack of desire or lack of a good moral code or lack of knowledge. It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But how are we gonna do this? And the next paragraph I think is so key. It says, that's what this book is about. Now, hang on to the sentence. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself Which will solve your problem. Okay, so if we were going on a treasure hunt for God, that one sentence would give us four clues. The main object of this book is to enable me to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So if this power is going to solve my problem, it must be intelligent, right? I've got two master's degrees. I could not figure out how to solve this problem. So this power must be really smart. The second thing, this power must be able to reason. I mean, a hurricane is a power greater than myself, but I would never think that a hurricane could solve my problem. And third, this power must be strong because this illness kicked my butt. So let's say I have one unit of power and this illness has 100 units of power well, then God has to have at least 101 units of power. And thankfully, he's got unlimited power. So we've got ability to reason, super intelligent, super powerful, and the fourth, and to me the most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would this power bother trying to solve my problem? might be able to, but if this power... Will solve my problem, this power must care about me, and dare I say this power must love me. so we've got four clues: ability to read read reason, super intelligent, super powerful, and loves me. so that's a God who can catch my attention, who I might be interested in and then the next paragraph, last paragraph on page forty five they're saying, okay, you may have liked our fellowship, but now when we talk about God, it's a different subject. So see how they separate fellowship and God? They don't make them one or the same. In fact, they make them distinct. When they say, okay, you may not like this. We know how you feel. as we have shared his, meaning the seekers, honest doubt and prejudice. And then this paragraph goes ahead and it lists, a bunch of prejudices we have that can block us from God. And I think it's really interesting that Bill Wilson in his story talked about his own prejudices and he says how when they fell away he's on page 12 he says scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes when I wanted God badly enough it says, a new world came into view. So these prejudices can block us from seeing the real God. So here's some prejudices that they say we might have. One, the concept of God with which I was brought up or that was modeled for me
2: doesn't work.
1: Two, calamity, right? This world of warring individuals, warring theological systems and inexplicable calamity. Three, I can't believe in something I don't understand. Four if I believe in God, it makes me weak. And fifth, um, which Bill talked about in his story, if I believe in God, I can't do what I want. So just a couple of quick words on each of those. The concept of God I was brought up with or had modeled to me doesn't work. We are allowed to choose our own concept of God. If I had a concept of God modeled to me where God had a book and on The left side, he was writing down my good deeds, and on the right side, he was writing down my bad deeds. And if when I died, the bad outweighed the good, three seconds after my death, he'd be waiting for me with a baseball bat. And in this life, I could forget about any help. I'm allowed to get rid of that concept of God. I'm allowed to kick that fake God out and create my own concept. Number two, calamity. This was Bill Wilson's problem, right? Um, what, he says that the things he'd seen from war, the fighting, the chicanery made him think if there was a devil, the devil was the boss. I mean, that's pretty strong. And how did Bill get past it? Well, Ebi, who was 12-stepping him, said, basically said, Bill, I don't know. All I know is that when I gave my life to God, the obsession to drink was taken from me. So I can sit there and say, I don't know why God allows human trafficking or extreme poverty or my kids to not always listen to me. Um, But all I know is that when I trust that God's more powerful and more smart than I am and has a loving plan and I surrender my life to him, things just work and I don't think about food. Um, Number three, I can't believe in something I don't understand. That one wasn't too hard for me. I use electricity. I don't understand the first thing about it, except when I put on a switch, it works. Number four, if I believe in God, it makes me weak. But I think any of us could look at some people in this world who we admire, like, I don't know, Mother Teresa, who believed in God fiercely, and she was anything but weak. And number five, if I believe in God, I can't do what I want yeah, I think this one can really trip us up because if we believe there's no God, we can lie, cheat, steal, do whatever we want. Um, but thankfully, by the time we reach this point where our lives are unmanageable, we're willing to stop lying, cheating, and stealing. Um, and so we're willing to say, okay, if there is a God, whatever his plan is has to be better than mine, and I'll do it. So those are the things that get in our way that I think we really have to look at Um, because a false view of God can get in the way of a real view of God, can get in the way of our real view of God. So I think what we have to do is just go through and look at our prejudices and then dismantle them, sometimes with the help of another person, but just look and see what they are and how they get in our way. Page 46, some of my favorite lines. It says, we found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, what we just talked about, and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. They make no bones about it. It's God with a capital G, a power with a capital P. But look what it says. We start getting this power at step two. As soon as we're willing to believe, we begin to get results. We don't get power at step one, right? Step one is I admit I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That doesn't give me the power to resist. If I had cancer and went to an oncologist and the oncologist showed me a scan that says, look, Janet, see, it shows you have cancer. Um, it's for sure. And I'm like, okay, I admit I have cancer, and that definitely makes my life unmanageable. The doctor would never say, great, now that you've admitted it, now go make your cancer cells stop multiplying. But what happens now is we start working on step two, and we get power. And what happens? Last paragraph on 46, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction. Those are the two things I needed, right? Lack of power, that's my problem. I get power and direction. But there's a caveat, provided we took other simple steps. So I can't stop with step two and say, okay, I'm willing to believe that God exists. Now, God, you come down like a genie in the bottle or like Santa Claus and remove my food obsession. Mm -mm. We have to take other simple steps. We have to go ahead and surrender, clean house, make amends, help others. But for now, they say we can start with a willingness to believe. I go ahead and page 47, it tells me, well, that's great news. Bottom of 47, I need willingness. For we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, which for now seem difficult. Right off the bat, we have to start making use of spiritual principles. Even if we're not sure what we believe, we can all start practicing honesty, self sacrifice, kindness to other people, doing things for others that are outside of our comfort zone. So we can start on a simpler level. We can do what we know. On page 48, um, it tells us that, yeah, the things that handicap us, right? We've got prejudices, handicaps, and spiritual cataracts. We talked about the prejudices. Here are the things that handicap us. Obstinacy, a stubborn refusal to change our opinions. Sensitiveness. No one can talk to us. It's like people feel they have to walk on eggshells around us. An unreasoning prejudice. And it tells us this has to be abandoned. And what helps us abandon it? Well, it says, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. Alcohol was a great persuader. It beat us into a state of reasonableness. So, a real first step makes us open minded, right? I would only be open minded to chemo if I thought I had cancer. Otherwise, there's no way I'd go for chemo. So, I think what they're really saying is that if someone continues to have a problem with step two and absolutely refuses to even consider the possibility of God, it's quite likely that person doesn't have a real first step because the first step, as they say, beats us into a state of reasonableness. So going ahead on page 49, they tell us at the bottom there, we who have traveled this dubious path, this hard path, beg you to lay aside prejudice even against organized religion. And it says, what we have to see is that many spiritually minded people of all races, colors, and creeds, we're demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. So again, no matter what our religion or lack of religion, I think we could all respect Mother Teresa. Why? Because she was demonstrating stability, happiness, and for sure, usefulness. Um, and that's what we're after: to be stable, happy, and useful. These, and by the way, I think these are the fruits of us working the steps. That's what we get. It warns us on page 50 about something that can get in our way, and it says wholesale condemnation. We can use the shortcomings of one people or a few people as the basis of wholesale condemnation. Let's say in my life I only meet one Eskimo, and, my, and that Eskimo is a really nasty person to me it is almost inevitable that I will get my head that Eskimos are nasty people. Or if that Eskimo is super sweet to me, it'll be all Eskimos are kind. So they're saying we have to guard against this natural tendency of wholesale condemnation. Just because there may have been a, you know, a nun with a ruler who slapped our wrists in parochial school, it doesn't mean that all religious people everywhere are bad. And it tells us then why we tell our stories. Um, In our personal stories, you'll find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. Whenever um, someone new is about to tell their story for the first time, and, you know, always nervous, I just say, make God the hero of your story, and then your talk will be fine. How did you find God? Or better yet, how did God find you? Well then they tell us that all these people who tell their stories, who found God, or who were found by God in different ways, agree on one thing? I always find this funny, right? A hundred alcoholics agreeing on anything. But they're all strikingly agreed on three things. One, they believe in a power greater than themselves. Two, they've gained access to this power. And three, this power has in each case, in 100% of the people, accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. I was binging and purging at my worst up to six times a day. I needed surgery to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the damage I'd done on it. I often couldn't make it to lunch without binging. I have gone now 39 years without binging. That is the miraculous. That is the humanly impossible. So I'm going to flip now or I will never have time to finish. Sorry. Let's flip to page 52, very bottom, where it talks about the Wright brothers. I always love this story. It says the Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. And I read that and I'm like, what? I mean, if you would have asked me, I would have said it was the Wright Brothers, I don't know, knowledge of aerodynamics or physics or all those things I know zero about that did it, right? But that's they say the mainspring of their accomplishment was their almost childish faith, their belief that it could happen just like one might say step 2 is childish or like childlike faith that god could restore us to sanity and they say without that nothing could have happened why i mean what is how does that even make sense i think it's because in the spiritual world faith is the currency here you know if let's say a martian were looking on looking down on me following me one day and saw me going to the grocery store and, you know, handing the clerk a credit card and getting a bag of groceries, he would say, that is so weird. She's handing him this little piece of plastic and he's giving her sustenance to live on. And then if he followed me to the gas station and saw me handing the clerk a $20 bill, well, I was out in LA recently, in LA it would be a $50 bill to get some gas Um, he would say, that makes no sense. A little green and white piece of paper with a picture of a former president on it, and she gets gas in her vehicle. It doesn't make sense. Well, that's because a Martian wouldn't understand the currency on earth. And maybe I don't always understand the currency in the spiritual world. I can't hand God a credit card or a $50 bill, but I can go with faith generally activated by prayer. I can go to God with trust. Like, God, I can't do this for myself, but I'm willing to believe that you exist and you can help me. And that starts something. That does something. Page 53 tells us, when we became alcoholics, compulsive eaters, crushed by a self-imposed crisis. I love those two words together. It's self-imposed, But it crushes us. It gets to the point where we are like in quicksand. We can't save ourselves. God has to launch a search and rescue mission for us. Because we're crushed by a self-imposed crisis we couldn't postpone or evade. And we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? So first that line, God is either everything or else he's nothing. I mean, we can get, you know, a little off track with that and say, well, God isn't the ant that's crawling across my floor, or God isn't evil. You know, we could say, well, clearly God isn't everything. Um, But I think what they mean is God either has to be everything. We either need to surrender everything to God, or it's if we surrender nothing. I can't give God my food, but cheat on my income taxes. God has to be everything. And then it says, what is our choice to be? So they're telling us that faith is a decision. What's the definition of faith? A belief that's not based on proof. I can make a decision to believe, just like I've made a decision to believe that when I flick the light switch, light's going to come out of the lamp. It's just a decision, a decision space. And, you know, you might say, well, you flicked the light switch a hundred times before and it came on. So you kind of do have some evidence. And I would say if someone's in these rooms, talk to enough people and you'll see that God flicked the light switch in these people's hearts a hundred times for a hundred different people, for a thousand different people, and that's pretty good evidence. So I'm gonna flip now over to page fifty five, my favorite part of the book, my favorite line. So it talks about um, yeah, we've seen spiritual release, but we like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. I know for myself, sometimes I would rather be right than be healed. We have to be careful that we wouldn't rather be right than be healed. And now my favorite line in the book. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Get that. They're telling us deep down in all of us is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created me, he gave me in me two kidneys a stomach, a heart, two lungs, and somewhere in there, the fundamental idea of himself. He loved me so much that he planted that fundamental idea of himself inside me. Um, A person could say they're an, an atheist or an agnostic. I mean, this is America. I could say whatever I want. I could say I'm a lung agnostic. I don't believe I have lungs. I have no proof. Well, it's there i If I'm breathing, I've got lungs, and just like a person can be a lung agnostic and say, "I have no lungs," a person can say, "I'm a God agnostic, there's no God." but they're saying, "Deep down in us, it's there." And they tell us why we may not believe that that knowledge that of God may be obscured by three things by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. Calamity, that's a problem that Bill Wilson had, right? You know, he said, what I've seen in war can't be, devil must be in charge. We talked about that. That's something that can obscure us. If something um, bad has happened to our, in our lives, or to those we love, that it's very often um, easy to just say, there is no God. Because of the calamity, but again, we can just do what Abby did with Bill. We can think that for ourselves. By pomp, well, that's me thinking that you know I'm on the throne. I don't need God on the throne because I want everything to go my way. And there's a prayer that I found that um, can be helpful with that. Um, God, if I'm honest, I have many masters, including myself. I am a long way from fully dying to my opinions, preferences, taste, and will. I choose to yield myself and let you take the lead again today. Teach me to care less about what others think, less about my own desires and comforts and demands, and to fix my eyes firmly on you. I think a prayer like that might be something that can help us get rid of the pomp that we have. And then the last one. Worship of other things. I mean, that is just straight out um, really a kind of idolatry, right? That other things are more important. The prior page talks about people, sentiment, things, money. Um, Caring too much about my career, my relationships. I've talked about this before. For me, the main worship of other things was my children. For some people, it's, how their children are doing, right? People may say they're um, obsessed with their children getting into a good college. They're obsessed with things like that, their children's success. My idolatry came in the form of my children loving me. I was almost paralyzed by fear that my, that my kids wouldn't love me. And that got in the way of my relationship with God because I was so focused on that That um, And my fear of that, that it dimmed my view of God. And, again, there's um, a prayer I have that I used for idolatry with children. I have to say that, um, thank God, I don't have that anymore. That one of my kids just recently went through something really hard, that there could have been a bad outcome. And while I was there for my child and I was helpful, my happiness was not bound up. In the success of that child. So here's a prayer that's been helpful to me. Um, if it's helpful to you, yay. Okay. Lord, I entrust my children to you now. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you, and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that uh, as I entrust my children to you, you're free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. Thank you that I matter to you. Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. Lord, I am excited to watch and see what you will do. Amen. So back to the text. Um, We all have in us the fundamental idea of God that can be blocked by calamity, pomp, worship of other things. But the text continues to say, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. So they say faith, belief in a power greater than ourselves, and miraculous demonstrations. What good is faith without power? My entire life, I believed that God exists. But I guess you could say I was like a practical agnostic because I believed in God, but it was totally irrelevant to my life. And they continue on and tell us, bottom of 55, we can only clear the ground a bit if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice. We talked about that. Think honestly and encourage you to search diligently. Then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. And they leave that paragraph with a promise. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. A promise. The consciousness. You will get it. You will get that relationship with God if you seek. And then they tell us a story. They end the chapter with a story, page 56, about the minister's son. And they say, yeah, he had pride. There was calamity in his life. He had resentment. And he ended up in a psychiatric hospital where, you know, he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. Then that same night, he's like, is it possible all the religious people I've known are wrong?" Okay, how did he get from point A to point B, where he says, if there is a God, he hasn't done anything for me, that, like, self-pity, self-righteous anger to that humility. What happened in between? Well, if we look at his whole story, which is our southern friend, which is his entire story, on page 214, it says that in between, he goes to see a fellow patient in the asylum. and he just goes to him and is like, okay, um, he's all confused. And so his friend there says, you think you're hopeless, don't you? And he says, I know it. And the man says, you're not. There are men on the streets of New York today who were worse than you, and they don't drink anymore. And then he asks, what do I do? And he says, basically, are you willing to go to any length? Are you willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? To right all your wrongs, no matter how wrong you think the other person was. Willing to be honest with yourself about yourself and tell someone. And willing to think about other people and their needs in order to get rid of the drink problem. And he says, I'll do anything. Then your troubles are over, says his friend. So he had a first step, the minister's son, and he had a willingness. And a beautiful line I heard once willingness opens the door to grace so he goes back to his room and he thinks is it possible all the worthwhile people i've known are wrong about god He's a little willing to believe and then he goes back his friend's room and he says i have to ask you a question how does prayer fit into this thing and he says well this is page 215 You've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you said, God, please do this. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it, right? The genie in the bottle, God. And if it didn't, you said, there is no God, right? And he said, yes. That isn't the way, his friend continued. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me in all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? And the minister's son says, yes. He returns to bed. He says he feels a wave of utter hopelessness. This is what he says. I'm in the bottom of hell, and there a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And that was it. The minister's son says that very night his drink problem was taken away. And on page 57 they say, what is this but a miracle of healing, yet its elements are simple. I love that. It's like a recipe. Here's the recipe for a miracle. One, circumstances made him willing to believe. He had a first step. He was willing to go to any length. He humbly offered himself to his maker. He committed his life to God. Then he knew. And then they promise that God comes to all who honestly seek him. And I just want to um, kind of close, just go outside the boundaries of this chapter just for a minute, um, to page 60, where it talks about God. Um, and it's in the ABCs. It says we have to be convinced of three things. We're alcoholics or compulsive eaters and can't manage our own lives. That's easy. The probably no human power could have relieved our compulsive eating. That's not too hard either. C, that God could and would if he were sought. And we, got, we get hung up on this a lot. So I would say we want to break it down. Do you believe that God could restore you to, could restore other people to sanity? And most people, if they're honest, would have to say yes. Do you believe that God could restore you personally to sanity? Not not that he wants to. He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? And I think we have to say, well, he did it for a 100 other people. I guess he could for me if he wanted to. Do you believe he will restore you to sanity? And this is where we get hung up. And there's usually five things that hang us up. One is um guilt. I've done something really bad. And in that case, the answer is we all have, and so did all the founders of this program. That's why there's a nine step. That's why there's amends. Number two, someone might say, well, it's not that, that I did something bad. I'm just not worthy. You know, this shame, this vague sense of shame that like 99% of us have, I'm not worthy. And then to that, we can say, well, you have two options. You can go to a therapist and spend like tens of thousands of dollars to be convinced you're worthy. Or you can look in the big book and you'll see that worthiness is never a requirement. It doesn't matter if you're not worthy. I certainly was never worthy. Only willingness is a requirement. Worthiness and irrelevant. And then three, someone might say, Well, I've tried this before and it hasn't worked. And to that I often hold up my cell phone. And I say, I could try 100 times to take a picture by pushing the on-off screen. And then let's say my son walks by and says, Mom, what are you doing? This is the button to take a picture. Suddenly, if I'm willing to push the right button that someone has now shown me, I can take pictures. doesn't matter if it's my first time or my thousandth time. Now I can do it. And then someone will say, well, God might help people with cancer because they didn't cause it, but this is my fault. And, you know, we're not going to debate whether we cause this or we're born with it. I, you know, I don't know. Um, but let's assume the person's right and it's their fault. I would say, let's say I'm crossing the street and I'm holding my cell phone and I get hit by a car and I break both legs. And when the ambulance comes, do do I say, ambulance driver, don't take me to the hospital It's my fault I broke my legs because I was looking at my cell phone, not looking both ways before I crossed the street. Leave me here. Don't get my broken legs fixed. Of course I don't, right? I say, take me to the hospital, fix my legs. But suddenly when it comes to God, for some reason, like we all get noble and say, well, it's my fault, so I can't go to God for help. We can go to God for help. It's okay. He doesn't care that it's our fault. And the last thing is someone might say, well, it says God could and would if he were sought, and I'm not willing to seek him. And to that person only, I would say, you're right. You know, God may not restore you to sanity because the requirement is to seek him. God wants us to seek him. He could do it to people who aren't, um, but the guarantee of restoration to sanity is for people who seek him. because ultimately." God wants to be in a loving relationship with us. Um, I'm just going to close with tell you the prayer that I said that um, changed my life that night 39 years ago. I'd gone to a meeting, and before the meeting, I was stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door. I went to a meeting, got a tough sponsor who I knew would let me get away with nothing, and then I went out to the parking lot and I said a prayer. And I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you are like and what you want for me. I'm willing to start over and let you show me what you like and how to worship you. And I kid you not, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And because this chapter's called We Agnostics, you know, there's got to be some kind of prayer for people who, aren't even sure that God exists. And so I would suggest the prayer could go something like this. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me. But if you are there and you care, I need some help and I'm willing to do my part. The worst thing that can happen is that there's no God, and you're talking to just like dead air and, you know, nothing. That's the worst that could happen. But what if there really is a God, and that prayer is a catalyst that rouses him into action, and he's saying, I'm so grateful. I was just waiting for this child of mine to reach out to me, and God springs into action and starts rewiring your heart to change you, and in a rewired heart that's rewired by God, the obsession can't live. What if that little prayer is the beginning of a miracle? And I believe it could be because my second favorite line in the book, page 153, the age of miracles is still with us. And I believe it really, truly is. And with that, I pass. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much, Janet, for this Very thorough, profound, thought provoking, and beautiful presentation on Chapter 4, We Agnostics. So very hope filled. Thank you very, very much for this gem for our archives and for all the ears on the line and those who will follow. Share ID for today's presentation 19,550. That's 19550. Janet's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Janet by pressing star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name.
3: A D G from Boston. Gotcha. The David from Florida. Florida. Veronica B. Alexis F, New Jersey.
2: Judy M., Maryland.
0: Judy M, is that correct?
2: N as in Nancy.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: Colleen M from Maryland. Colleen.
3: Matthew G in France.
0: Okay, thus far I have Katie G, Loretta H, Veronica B, Alexis F, Judy N, Colleen M, and Matthew G. Let's get started with this list.
3: Can I I put in for Annette F? Annette F? From Florida.
0: Okay, Annette, you're on the list as well. Thank Thank you. you. Everybody, please mute, except for Katie G. Go ahead. Questions only, of course.
2: Hey, oh, excuse me. Hey, Leah, thank you for your service. Janet, it's always spectacular to hear you, and you can redirect my question. Um, If it's not pertinent, I just, my ears perked up about the idolatry around kids. I'm wondering if you might be able to expand
3: on um, work you would specify for people who are having idolatry come up, um, and, uh, yeah, how to get back to God on that.
2: Thanks.
1: Yeah, hi Katie. Um that's a great question. So, I think idolatry is a character defect. So, I would treat it like any other character defect. I would inventory it and see all the manifestations of it, share it with another person, and then ask God to remove it and practice the opposite. So, here's what um practicing the opposite might look like for me. Um I had one of the ways it manifests itself for me was like i had this demand that once my kids left for college they go to church um and i didn't think they were so i would ask them every sunday did you go to church did you go to church and then finally i decided "Mm, that's wrong and i stopped asking i made myself stop asking so we inventory we share with another person we ask god to remove And then we practice the opposite, just like any other defect. And also, um, along with that, I think the opposite of idolatry is keeping God on the throne. So then I might want to do something like if I saw I was indulging in idolatry and that defect, go and sing a worship song to God to just direct my attention back to him. So thanks.
0: Thank you, Katie G. Loretta H. Your question.
2: Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Janet. Your digestion today was like a homily. I felt like I was in church, and I want my question is: Have you ever had you have thirty-nine years of absence, where even though you don't pick up the food, you've had a loss of touch with God, and you? Um, How do you get that back when things, Um, clamors happen? Thank you. Yes. Um, So I
1: first, I look for that in myself. I, you know, kind of aware, like, I'm not feeling close to God lately. So, I mean, here's one thing. (laughs) Recently, I saw that I was just, reading too much, like reading novels too much. And I felt like it was dimming my desire to read spiritual things. You know, it was like, I just wanted to like read books. So I put myself on a media fast for a week. I just said for a week, I'm not reading any novels. I'm only going to read spiritual things. So I guess I would sum it in two things. I look for it. So like, I look for it myself, like, okay, is God kind of, front and center and other things, you know, less important. And if something else is starting to capture my attention more, then I try and do something about it. And there's also a prayer I have. Um, let me see if I could find it really quick. Okay. Yeah. So there's a prayer um, that is also helpful. Goes like this, Lord, the more you are on the periphery of my thoughts and feelings, the less self-control and the less love I have. The more you are in the center, vividly before the eyes of my heart and attention, the more I can control myself and love others. Lord, please grab and hold my attention moment by moment so I can live as I should. Amen. So to sum up, I treat it by prayer and then I try to practice the opposite. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Loretta H. Veronica B., your turn.
2: Hi, I'm Veronica, Recovered, Compulsive Eater, and Bulimic. And thank you, Janet, for that wonderful um, presentation. It's my favorite chapter also. And My question is kind of like what everybody, um, Katie G., about character defects. Um, God has restored me to sanity in most Areas of my life, except for my jealousy, it really blocks me from uh connecting spiritually with God, and it really brings me a lot of suffering and um what is your experience with I mean I know you shared about your children, but um i what is your experience with a uh, character defect that really you know all are, all other areas of your life are are working well except for one area. Like you, you just can't seem to um, turn it over or just trust God in that area. I'm having like a, a lot of suffering because of me not turning over this character defect. Um, any experience, strength, and help um, for me? Thanks. Yeah. So
1: again, I would think the process is the same. We we inventory it, and then we have to see if we're willing to have it removed, right, if we're willing to have God remove it. Um, and sometimes we're not because we're afraid if God removes this defect, whatever it might be, we're not going to get something that we really, really want. Um, and I think we have to get to that point and ask God to remove it and practice the opposite. So I would say the opposite of jealousy is gratitude. So to practice gratitude a lot, and not just like making a list, but like out loud thanking God for the things. And if it's a person you're jealous of, I would suggest doing anonymous nice
2: things for that person. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thanks Veronica B. Alexis F, your turn.
3: Yes, hi Jay uh Janet and Leia. Um my question is it were you said willing to go to any lengths. Were you talking about one hundred percent abstinent, ninety five percent abstinent, gray some gray area in the black and white? Um, what percentage of working the steps, I know it says we are not saints just willing to grow along spiritual lines. What's your opinion of that?
1: So the way I understand willing to go to any length, I'm powerless over food, Um, but I'm not powerless over taking actions that will allow the grace of God to come in and keep me abstinent. And those actions I have to do 100%, which means um, let's say my sponsor tells me I have to make three phone calls a day, I have to spend 30 minutes a day with God, and I have to go to four meetings a week. Those are all things, you know, barring a hurricane striking or something, that I can do 100%. And so I have to tell you, I require my sponsors to do them 100%. If they say, well, I made two phone calls a day, and yeah, I only went to two meetings, and I only spent 20 minutes with God, if that becomes a regular thing, I actually open up the book to page 58 and tell them I'm not allowed to sponsor you. Page 58 says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So I require 100% compliance with the things I ask people to do, barring obviously a hurricane striking. As far as the line in the book, we are not saints. Um, we are, you know, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. I don't believe they're talking about that. I believe they're talking about things like resentment, fears that it's not going to happen. That I never have resentment. Never have fear, but I should have progress, which means that um, instead of getting resentment I, I 10 times like a day, you get,
2: you're filled with joy by doing that. And so, like, if you include oh, that someone's in your business, like, you are not only are you going to be blessed, but you're going to have so much fulfillment. Like, someone's unmuted. That it's not going to really matter.
0: Yes, we're going to tend
2: to that. You know, like
0: you're just we're going to be rich in a different way. That makes.
3: Janet, can you continue? Yeah. Okay.
1: So the line spiritual progress versus spiritual perfection. um, I grow in that. I'm not supposed to get as many resentments as I used to because we grow in love and tolerance. And this, you know, as it says on, I think it's page 153. Let me get the exact line for you. The things that used to, the things, no, it's not 153. The things that used to matter so much to us don't anymore. Um, So we don't get irritated as easily. And when we do, we can resolve them more quickly. So instead of staying in resentment for, you know, three days, it becomes two days and one, then three hours, then most of them resolved, you know, within the hour. So that's, I think what they mean by spiritual progress, that our defects of character, even though they never get to the point where we have no defects, um, but they should be diminishing. We should all be able to look back and say, I'm better in this area than I was a year ago. So I think that's what that means. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Alexis F., for the question. Next question comes from Judy N.
2: Good morning. My question concerns on page 55 when you were that when you were discussing that God's love is inside each of us. But for some of us, God's love is blo- blocked by calamity, pomp, and you offered a prayer, worship of other things. You went into detail of that I'm working with someone where God's love, this person's religious, but God's love has been blocked by personal calamity. And I don't know how to respond to that and you did not offer a prayer at that point. Can you just give uh, expand on that a little bit, how to help someone where God is blocked because of a personal calamity they've, su- they've suffered from? Thank you.
1: That is a hard one, So, but not insurmountable. And I would um, read, let me find, page 11 in Bill's story, where that's what bill was talking about and he said but my friend sat before me and he made the point-blank declaration that god had done for him
0: what he could
1: not do for himself so what i do for myself in hard things is i just say i don't understand why god allowed this to happen." But I know that God is good, and I know that people that God restores people to sanity. I've seen it all over. So I just have to lay aside my question as to why did you allow that God, and to just go with God has to be good because look at these hundred people I know who were binging their brains out, and when they turned to God he removed their obsession. I don't know why he does that for compulsive eaters and alcoholics, um, but he doesn't have something like that for cancer, that if you do these 12 steps, God will remove your cancer. I don't know. And, you know, but I do know that, thank God, he did make that way of escape for us. And the other thing I can do is I can model love to that person. You know, obviously like I'm not God, but sometimes people talk about human beings can be God with skin on. And so as best we can, we wanna be God with skin to our suffering fellows. Thanks, that's a hard one, but that's the best
2: I can do for you.
0: Thank you, Judy, and for the question. Colleen M., you're
2: up. Hi. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for that powerful presentation of my favorite chapter. I was wondering if there's any way that you could share the prayers that you said, Um, and that's really all I had.
1: Um, well, not? At the end, they'll give out my email, and if anyone emails me, then I'm happy to send the prayers.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. Matthew G., your turn.
3: Hi, this is Matthew G., a compulsive eater in France. Thank you so much, Janet. That was absolutely awesome. You are awesome. Um, I loved your, when you talk about the spiritual currency being our childlike faith, and my question is, how do we keep that fresh today? How do we keep how do we keep that childlike faith fresh? Thank you.
1: So I think right, that's what our step eleven is, um, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, so that we keep learning more about God. We just keep, I don't know, for me it's like studying more about God, reading um, different things that just excite my soul. That's really what does it for me. And um, working with others and seeing God come alive for them also keeps my soul happy um, and keeps it fresh. So those are the two things that I can think of that work for me.
0: Thanks.
3: Beautiful. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Matthew G. Annette F., your turn.
3: Hi. Thank you. Really thank you for your uh, sharing because it was amazing. And it brought to light, I have a sick husband. And I I have, of course, the days that I really worry he's going to die. (laughs) Abstinence lately has not gone completely out the window, but... You know, I, I'm an emotional leader. And I think you answered the question, but could you answer it again, please? <laughs> what What do I do to hang on? I know God is there for me. I know he loves me. And yet when it comes to this personal attachment, because this is the second husband that has had cancer. <laughs> so I kind of have seen the preview already. Got any suggestions? Yes, first
1: I am so, so sorry. That has to be beyond awful. And I'm really like, that must be really hard what you're going through. Um, Thank you. I would say, you know, I don't know how to deal. I don't know how to help emotional eaters, right? Because emotional eater is someone who, you know, I guess I would think of that, like, I don't know if my daughters and her boyfriend had a fight and she would eat you know, eat a pint of ice cream, that might be an emotional eater, like eating when you're upset.
2: Mm -hmm. That I
1: don't think is a a compulsive eater. I ate because I had no choice. I ate when I was happy. I ate when I was sad. I ate because it was a Tuesday and it was raining. So it wasn't because of my, you know, I wasn't an emotional eater. And I think the big book is clear that we are safe and protected by God unless um, there's a problem in our spiritual condition so i would say in a time like this and i really like so hesitate to give any guidance because all i want to do is give you empathy honestly um because it just must be horrible but the first and thing i would am say, i am
3: a food addict i've been in the program for 45 I, years
1: yeah so i'm definitely I would, a food addict yeah. I would say is get around people who love you get around people who love you. And, you know, if, and I would deal with some of the things that are no doubt coming up right now, you might have some resentment against God, like God really two husbands dying of cancer and do a resentment inventory and do a fear inventory. Um, Because really the three things, I mean, the main things that block us from God are resentments, fears, harms to others, and if we're through with the steps, if we refuse to work with other people. I would say at this point, um, you might want to get with your sponsor or trusted friend and go through any resentments or fears you might have and and get some help with that.
3: And again, I'm really sorry. Okay. Thank you. But that's a wonderful, you know, in the middle of it, you just don't think of the stuff that you already know of. (laughs) Out the window. So thank you for that. Thank
0: you, Annette, for your question. Prayers Uh to you. We have time for a couple more questions before we close here.
3: Janice A. in Chicago.
0: Did I hear you, Janice
3: P.M.? You heard me well.
0: Okay, and who else? Deb A. Deb A. Deb A. Dana P. And Dana P, let's see what our time allows for. Thank you. Beginning with Janice PM.
1: Well, thank you so much, Leah. And oh my goodness, um Janet B, thank you so much for your inspirational demonstration <laughs> and uh presentation. Um I have a question. I want your opinion, what you do. I know I get a lot of calls, and I know what I do when somebody asks
3: me, how do you know the difference between self-will and God's will? And if you could give your
1: experience, I'd like to, to see how you diagnose that. Okay? Thank you. That's my question. Yeah. I think the truth is we don't always, right? The big book tells us we're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So we don't always know. Um, But I would say if I'm, there's an action I'm going to take that I think is God's will. And it's pretty major. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, what should I wear to work today? But something that might be significant, I check with someone else. because um, Again, that's in line with what the big book tells us in chapter six. Um, It tells us we're not going to be experienced um, and get it right all the time. And that's okay. God knows my heart. Um, So that's for someone who's working working the steps, that if we're really earnest, we're not always going to know. So um, I would say the best thing is to check with God and then check with another person. And if we have ideals, like I think those of us who've gone through the steps have a sex ideal. If it's something that's against an ideal we made at one point, there's a good chance it's self-will. And that's all I got on that.
2: Well, thank you.
0: Thanks, Janice, PM. Next up, Pete B, followed by Deb A. Go ahead, Pete.
3: Uh. Th- thank you, Margaret. I appreciate your service. And thank you, James, for your uh, presentation. It was ver- uh, very uh, sound and well thought out. I have a question for you. Uh, um, in the big book, it says, uh, in step 10, it says that our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Could you please share how that manifests itself in your life?
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question. So I think understanding is my understanding of God. And so what I do is I spend time in prayer, meditation and spiritual reading. I always want to be reading some spiritual thing that captures my attention. Um, whether it's a devotional or a Bible study or, you know, a book, something that's like meaty that just speaks to my heart. There may be something that speaks to other people's heart and I read it. And I'm like, nah, doesn't do it for me. Uh, so I, I, intentionally look for things that are going to um, like fan the flame of my love for God and effectiveness. I try and work as hard as I can with other people to put in as much time as my situation allows to put in effort um, um, to try and think of the best ways to help people. Whenever I speak, I always spend time prepping. Um, I don't just say, like, I'll wing it. Um, I'm not, now, some people can. Some people just, like, feel they're going to be inspired and all that. But you ask me what I do. So I, I you know, I put a lot of time in. Um, and so I think that's it. Like, finding things that fan the flame of my love for God is the main way I grow in understanding. And effectiveness is just working with others. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Deb A, your question, please. And then our final question will come from Dana P.
3: Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. This is Deb A, um, Composable Reader in Chicago. And thank you so much, Janet. I really appreciate your presentation. I wonder if you could please give an example of how you would inventory the character defect of idolatry or any other character defect uh, for that matter.
1: Sure. Um, So let's say idolatry. I would say, okay, I have this idolatry of what my children think of me. How is it manifesting in my life? So it would be, um, Sometimes I don't discipline, this is when they were younger, sometimes I don't discipline them when I should for fear they'll get mad at me. Um, Sometimes I'll ask them, like, do you love me, to get reassurance. So those would just be examples. I would look for all the manifestations. Then I would take it to someone, my sponsor, my 10-step partner, go over all of it. Ask God to remove it
3: and practice the opposite. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Deb A, and Dana P. Please, your question.
3: <clears throat> Thank you so much, Leah. And Dana P. Here and Janet. As always, a pleasure. Um, I <clears throat> I know how I go about uh, this, but my question to you is: I hear a lot of the word God and a lot of the word Him, and how do you work with somebody that is has? a struggle around the word God and the masculine reference to God. That's my question.
1: So again, I can only tell you what I do. I can't say this is the right way or the wrong way. I just tell them, you know, obviously if they know me, they know my belief, I'm going to say God and him. And I say, and that's what the big book says. So as we're going through the work, that's how I'm going to refer to God. But if you want to refer to God, a different way that's okay so I don't change what I do but I don't make them change what they do to fit me unless it's absurd if someone says my god is a doorknob that makes no sense because I could smash a doorknob the doorknob obviously can't reason isn't smart strong or cares about me um, but if someone wants to call God, you know, by a different name, the book tells me, you know, I have no right to tell them they can't. So that's how I handle it.
0: Thank you, Dana P. We could squeeze in one more question if there's someone with a question on their mind. One more. Star one, to mute
3: from New York. I'd like to uh, do it quickly. Okay, quick
0: quick question, Elaine.
3: Yeah, um, I'm looking for a psychiatrist for the last two weeks and I don't seem to find one. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, like, why is this happening? That, and also um, that some of the doctors are being really mean and some of them not honest, not honest and this and that. How do I keep my faith?
1: So, I think This question really goes for any question of things aren't going, you know, in a good way for me or the way that I think they should. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to always keep our faith in is to just remind ourselves God is good. God's timing is not always my timing. And my job is just to do what I think God would have me do and trust him with the results and to just keep reminding myself of that.
2: Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Elaine. Thank you to all those who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Janet, for your beautiful presentation this morning. So inspirational and powerful and just another gem for the archives. Thank you. The SHARE ID for today's presentation, 19,550. That's one nine. Five, five, zero. And we're going to close this morning from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come